0: Hello, and welcome to Assassinations Podcast. This episode continues our season focusing on royalty. It will be the first of a two-parter, with the concluding episode coming out next week. We're going to be looking at the fate of an Arab king who met his demise at the hands of one of his own kinsmen, but who else might have been involved. Before we get started on that, I have to make a correction to a wee error I made in a previous episode. One of my listeners, Maria, emailed me to say that in the recent episode on Stepan Bandera, I said that the controversial Ukrainian leader, who collaborated with the Nazis during the Second World War, had been recognised as a national hero by President Viktor Yanukovych. I had meant to say Viktor Yushchenko. So, thank you, Maria. That is an important clarification, as these two vectors represent very different political currents in Ukraine's recent history. So, Saudi Arabia. I have a bit of a personal connection to the country, and I've always been fascinated by it, though I've never travelled there. You see, my father worked in Saudi Arabia for a year when I was a little boy. He was an engineer, and he took a job on a large civil engineering project in the city of Jeddah in 1984. He had the option to bring his family with him, but my mum had a career of her own, and neither of them wanted my older brother to be taken out of school. I don't really have a recollection of the absence of my father. I was only four years old, and at that age I think one has a peculiar sense of the passing of time – A year can go by very quickly. But I do vividly remember when my dad came home. He was not an emotionally demonstrative man, but he hugged me for the longest time. For years I heard stories about his sojourn in Saudi Arabia. I was enthralled by his tales of this exotic land of Bedouin tribesmen who ate sheep's eyeballs, of gold markets where merchants could leave their stores unattended as nobody would dare steal for fear that they would have their hand chopped off, of women who covered themselves from head to toe in black robes, of a fabulously wealthy prince whose whims dictated the fate of the project that my father was working on, and of the enormous car that my father drove while he lived there, a Lincoln Continental, which was to me, growing up in Glasgow, an impossibly luxurious vehicle and a million miles from the very modest Austin Allegro that my mum drove. I learned from my father that foreigners did much of the work in the kingdom. Brits and Americans were the engineers and architects. Koreans were plumbers and electricians. Pakistanis laid bricks and poured concrete. The payroll clerks were Iraqis who could count bills faster than any machine. Filipinos worked as caterers and cleaners. My father lived in a large bungalow in a foreign workers' community, separated from the Saudi population by a wall. He shared the house with two American engineers, and they were taken care of by an Indian servant. The man in charge of the project my dad worked on was a Sudanese engineer who had been trained by the East Germans. Mr. Moore was his name, and he took a shine to my dad. Mr. Moore invited him to his home, where Mrs. Moore served them dinner, not dressed in the barka she wore outside her home, but in modern Western clothing, a transformation that somehow surprised my father. He came home to Scotland flush with cash and carrying a box full of toys for me, including beautiful die-cast model cars that I played with and cherished for years. But, to me, the most intriguing thing he brought home was actually a very simple item, really a throwaway gift, a keychain with miniature laminated versions of every denomination of Saudi banknote. On these reals were pictures of towering minarets, a desert oasis, the ornate arches of a palace courtyard, an oil rig, a refinery, the colonnaded entrance to a grand mosque, and, as my father explained to me, on the 500 rial bill, the black Kaaba in the holy city of Mecca, where Muslims from all round the world come to pay homage to Allah and his prophet. On all of the banknotes were the faces of old men with beards, wearing white head coverings and benevolent expressions. All these images were as alien to me as it was possible to imagine. This was a country of mystery and wonder, strange to my childish mind as the fictional land depicted in The Wizard of Oz. That was my impression of Saudi Arabia as a small child, but when I was a little older, my father told me of a darker side to the kingdom. Of the day, as he was wandering around Jeddah, he found himself in a public square where the headless body of a criminal hung crucified for all to see. That memory stuck with me too, side by side with the images of those kindly kings on the little banknotes. And one of those kings? was Faisal, the subject of these episodes. The origins of the Saudi royal family are shrouded in mystery. There is a book, published in the Ottoman Empire in 1868, titled Memoirs of Mr. Hemfer, A British Spy to the Middle East. This book claims to tell the story of an English secret agent who, in the early 1700s, disguises himself as a Muslim in order to infiltrate the Ottoman Empire and sow divisions among the peoples of their realm, to the benefit of Britain's interests in the Middle East. To this end, the eponymous Hemfer helps to create a new Islamic sect, with the secret purpose of dividing Muslims and undermining Ottoman rule. The sect gains credibility amongst the faithful by appearing, on the surface, to be morally very strict. Hemfer enlists the support of a young man in the Arab city of Basra near the Persian Gulf. The name of this man is Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab. By means of bribery and flattery, the English spy corrupts young Wahhab, who becomes the face of the sect, which later bears his name. Wahhab then forges an alliance with a desert-dwelling clan, the al-Sauds, who provide an army with which to spread this British-created, divisive creed or so the account of Mr. Hemfer goes. But it's widely believed that the Hempher story is a work of fiction, a forgery, written to give the impression that it is a historical memoir. The real author might be a man named Sabri Pasha, an Ottoman writer and naval officer who penned the work in order to discredit Wahhabism and the Saudis, who were at the time seen as a threat to the Ottoman Empire in Arabia. So, what do we really know about the House of Saud and its connection to the Wahhabi sect? Well, it seems that the founder of the dynasty was a man named Saud bin Mohammed al-Makrin, who lived from 1640 to 1726 AD. His son did have a fateful encounter with al-Wahhab, and the Saudis did adopt his unorthodox interpretation of Islam, which applies Sharia law in a particularly strict fashion. That event seemingly occurred in 1744 AD, when al-Wahhab, Running from tribespeople who rejected his radical new beliefs, was given shelter by Mohammed bin Saud, by then the leader of his tribe. The two men formed a pact, cemented by the marriage of al-Wahhab to a daughter of the Saudi family. This alliance was one of those seemingly insignificant occurrences that turns out to be a pivotal moment in the human story. A handshake in a desert that sealed a deal between a petty tribal ruler and an obscure cleric. An alliance that, many decades later, would change the course of history, when the sons of the House of Saud, with their Wahhabi clerical cousins at their side, reconquered Mecca and Medina and established the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. An event that would send ripples, indeed waves, around the world, shaping global economics and geopolitics to this day. The first step in this new alliance between al-Saud and al-Wahhab was to unite, or subjugate, the tribes around them. Armed with Saudi swords and Wahhabi zeal, their tandem enjoyed success, gradually building the domination of the Al Saud dynasty to the point that they might control the Arabian Peninsula from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea, and achieve their prime goal, capturing the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. By 1818, the House of Saud achieved this goal and they were within striking distance of seizing the third holiest site of the Islamic faith, Jerusalem. But the Saudis faced internal divisions, defeats at the hands of rival tribes, and eventual domination by the Ottoman Empire, the realm that stretched at its greatest extent from the Transylvanian mountains of Europe to the Persian Gulf, and from North Africa through the Levant to its capital city, Constantinople in modern-day Turkey. The Ottomans took formal control of Mecca and Medina, though they let a local tribe, Hashemites, rule the area as kings or sharifs. Similarly, they accepted the significant autonomy of other powerful Arab tribes, such as Al-Rashids and even the Sauds. But a Saudi leader soon emerged to regain his family's self-declared patrimony. Abdulaziz bin Abdul Rahman al-Saud, born in 1875, endured hardship and exile before returning to lead his tribe, becoming king of Najid, a region that extended over much of central and eastern Arabia. From there, he and his warriors embarked on a three-decade-long conquest of the peninsula. Better known in the Western world as Ibn Saud, literally, son of the Saud, he owed much of his success in battle to the creation of a new and terrifying fighting force, an ultra-zealous militia called the Ikhwan, which in Arabic means the Brethren. These were young men specially selected from nomadic Bedouin people, tribes that had long been allied with the Saudi dynasty. Emerging around the turn of the 20th century, the Ikhwan were recruited and radicalised, we might say, by the Wahhabi, also known as the Salafi clergy. Thoroughly indoctrinated and filled with a burning passion to spread their version of Islam, these young men were transformed from simple shepherds into fervent soldiers for the faith. Whether or not we believe that there ever was a British spy named Mr. Hemfer what is not in dispute is that the British did play a role in the revival of the fortunes of the House of Saud. A British soldier, civil servant and cartographer named William Shakespeare, yes, that's right, William Shakespeare, made contact with Abdulaziz Ibn Saud in 1910. The two men seemed to have become friends, and for the next five years, Shakespeare acted as political and military advisor to the Arab king. Shakespeare spent long hours in the tribal chief's company, welcomed into his home, travelling with him around his domain, and even photographing Abdul-aziz, who had never seen a camera before. Shakespeare was officially in Arabia to chart its desert interior, and he did indeed conduct extensive mapping operations during his time there. But, clearly, the British Empire had more interest in Arabia than as a subject for cartographical research, and more interest in Ibn Saud than as a photographic study. Britain was working to undermine Ottoman rule in the region. For many years, the British had fought and connived to chip away at the Ottoman Empire in the Mediterranean, the Balkans and the Persian Gulf. Ibn Saud and his tribal warriors were a potential ally for the British as they sought to weaken the Ottomans in the eastern part of the Arab Peninsula and Mesopotamia. It would be a stretch to say that the Ottomans really ruled that part of the world I think it would be more accurate to say that in large parts of Arabia, the Ottomans exerted a nominal authority, with the tribes left to do more or less as they pleased, so long as they did not challenge Turkish hegemony. The Sauds had a long history of disputes with the Ottoman Empire, and were therefore a suitable ally for Britain's scheming. Britain already controlled the port city of Aden in southern Arabia, which was guarded by a brigade of the British Indian Army, which was the largest army in the world in the early 20th century. The Brits had also formed ties with tribal groups in Yemen and southern Arabia, and established an alliance with the Sultan of Oman. With its Indian Empire to the east, a foothold in Arabia to the south, and Egypt as a British semi-colony, London was primed to seize Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire. The outbreak of the First World War in the summer of 1914 brought the major empires into conflict. On one side stood Britain, France and Russia. On the other side, Germany, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Britain engaged in an all-out offensive to seize the Ottoman territories it had long coveted. In November 1914, soldiers from the British Indian Army attacked Ottoman positions in southern Mesopotamia. This is the region comprising parts of modern-day Iraq and Kuwait. A key victory for the British in this campaign was the successful siege of the city of Basra. This was a vital stronghold that the British could use to secure the rich oil fields of the region. Under the guidance of Shakespeare, Ibn Saud indirectly supported the British war effort by continuing his fight against the al-Rashids, who, for their own strategic reasons, sided with the Ottomans against the British. The feared Ikhwan warriors were at the forefront of this fight, with the ultimate aim of asserting Saudi – and therefore Salafi, authority over the whole of Arabia. A victory for Ibn Saud against his Rashidi foes would push British influence deep into Ottoman territory, giving them access to the Levant from the south. The Saudis and the Rashidis faced off at the Battle of Jarab in Central Arabia in 1915. The Rashidi army prevailed, and William Shakespeare was killed in the fighting. This was a double blow for British interests in the region. It was also something of a turning point in history. Had the Saudis won and Shakespeare lived, this victory might have made Ibn Saud the key Arab ally in Britain's effort to defeat the Ottomans but the victory of the Rashidis and the death of Shakespeare forced the British to focus elsewhere for an anti-Ottoman-Arab alliance. Q, none other than T.E. Lawrence, better known to history as Lawrence of Arabia. He was another British soldier spy who had cosied up to an Arab ruler, in this case Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Hejaz and head of the House of al-Hashim. And, as some of you might remember, T.E. Lawrence was also a subject of an episode of this show back in 2019. Hejaz is a region of the Arabian Peninsula along the coast of the Red Sea. Apart from any strategic military significance, control of Hejaz was vitally important from a propaganda point of view. The holy cities of Mecca and Medina are there and the Ottomans derived some authority over the Muslim world through their claim to be the guardians of the holiest sites of the Islamic faith. As in some of its other Arab territories, the Turks exercised quite limited practical control of Hejaz, leaving their local allies much to themselves. Hussein bin Ali had not shown any particular opposition to this rather laissez-faire arrangement, and he remained loyal to the Ottoman Sultan at the start of the war. But his son, Abdullah, persuaded him that a wave of Turkish nationalism had overwhelmed the inner core of the Ottoman Empire, posing a risk to Arab interests. He suggested that his father should instead back the British, who, he claimed, could help to liberate the Arabs and thereby offer the House of al-Hashim an opportunity to rise and rule Arabia and the Levant. Under British tutelage, Abdullah and his brothers Ali and Faisal, no relation to today's subject, would go on to rule the kingdoms of Hejaz, Transjordan and Iraq, the latter two being established by Britain after the war, when the Ottoman Empire had been defeated and dismembered. After 1918, Britain, and to a lesser extent France, emerged as the dominant powers in the Middle East. Though the British had focused their support on al-Hashim and his sons, it would not be long before the watery eye of perfidious Albion turned back to the House of Saud as a potential ally, against Hashemite rule in Hejaz. But more on that after this break. I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you once again about a product I've been using, Athletic Greens. The company reached out to me earlier this year about advertising on the show, and I've been using the product ever since. I think it's really good. I've been using their AG1 mix of vitamins, minerals, and whole foods, which come in a convenient daily serving. Just one scoop mixed with half a pint of water helps to improve gut health, energy, and boosts the immune system. I generally find it to be a bit of a chore to take a bunch of different vitamins, probiotics, and supplements each day. I always end up forgetting to take them. AG1, however, Overcomes this problem for me because it actually tastes good, so drinking it every day fits easily into my morning routine. It's not too sweet, with less than one gram of sugar, but it does have a nice kind of tropical taste, which I like. I've been on it for a few months now, and I have noticed an improvement to my digestive health and my overall energy level. It kind of makes me feel a bit more alert, maybe more able to focus. And uh, my wife started taking AG1 too, so that's a pretty good endorsement as far as I'm concerned. So I can say from my own experience that if you want to boost your well-being with a convenient daily dose of nutrition, then check out Athletic Greens. It's just one scoop of water in a cup every day. That's it. And to make life even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of their immune-boosting vitamin D, travel packs with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com/emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com/emerging. More details in the show notes that accompany this episode. Now, back to the show. The Arab world after the fall of the Ottoman Empire was fraught with tensions. Hashemite rule was not welcomed across much of the region. Britain and France had drawn lines in the sand across the Middle East, carving out countries where none previously existed. These newly minted states had no particular national identities, and there were often more enmities than commonalities between their citizens. Iraq was a prime example. Cobbled together from various Ottoman provinces, the country was created as a British vassal state made up of Sunni and Shiite Arabs, Kurds, Assyrian Christians, and Babylonian Jews. There were feuding tribes, there were sectarian disputes, and there was now apparently some king that the British had imported from a thousand miles away from a tribal family on the other side of the Arabian desert. The Ottomans had dominated the Levant, the Middle East and Mesopotamia for centuries through a combination of bribery, force and a good deal of pragmatism. The Ottoman Sultan also had the advantage of being Muslim and possessing the title of Caliph, the highest authority in the Sunni Muslim world, the steward of Allah's followers on earth. So the Ottomans, though Turks and not Arabs, could at least claim to be the defenders of a shared Islamic faith and heritage. On the other hand, the British Allied House of Hashim held the title of Custodian of the Two Holy Mosques, referring to the Al-Haram Mosque in Mecca and the Prophet's Mosque in Medina. And, from 1924, the Sharif of Hejaz also claimed the title of Caliph. That meant the al-Hashims were as close as the British could get to Arab rulers with a degree of religious credibility. But that didn't amount to much in practice. To many conservative and radical Muslims, the Hashemites lacked religious authority. To the embryonic pan-Arab nationalist movement, they were nothing more than tame sheikhs, puppets of their British masters. To other powerful tribal groups, they were rivals and usurpers and to the Salafi clergy, the Hashemites were impure and unworthy custodians of the two holy mosques. To make matters even more fraught, the European powers had seized control of the Levant. The British possessed Palestine, including the city of Jerusalem. This is the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest place in the Muslim faith. Meanwhile, France had taken possession of the northern Levant, creating the states of Syria and Lebanon. Another son of Sharif Hussein had hoped to become king of the Levant, and the House of Hashim felt that Britain had cheated them out of this portion of what they saw as their God-given patrimony. Perhaps most controversially of all to the Arabs, the British had promised to create a semi-autonomous homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration was a promise made by the British government in 1917 to support the establishment of a, national home for the Jewish people, in the event that the Ottoman Empire was defeated in the war. At that time, the Jewish population of Palestine was tiny, just a few thousand. The declaration was made by Britain's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, in a letter to Walter Rothschild, who was a leading supporter of the Zionist movement, which sought to encourage Jewish emigration to Palestine. Initially, the British only agreed to a very geographically small concession to the Zionists. In a typically British compromise, which angered many and pleased no one, the colonial government of Palestine placed a severe limitation on Jewish migration. For the Zionists, this was a ridiculous contradiction. In what sense was this a homeland for the Jews, if so few Jewish people were able to travel there to make it their home? This compromise was seen by the Arabs in an equally unfavourable light. To them... Limited Jewish migration to Palestine would inevitably be the thin end of the wedge. Once the Zionists had established a beachhead, it was only a matter of time before the limitation on Jewish immigration imposed by the British would be loosened. Many Zionists were quite open that this was in fact their intention. They stated that their aim was to encourage mass migration of European Jews to Palestine which would necessitate driving out the native Arab people of the land. Though, it should be said, there were very few European Jews who, at this time, could be enticed to move to Palestine. So, basically, nobody was especially happy with the situation. It was a classic British fudge. And things were about to get even stickier. However, we must wait until the concluding part of this investigation next week in order to find out about these British intrigues with the House of Saud, intrigues that would continue as Ibn Saud and his many sons, Faisal included, struggled for power over the Arabian Peninsula and the wider Muslim world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. It was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music is by Graham Ronald. For more information and our contact details, check out the show notes that accompany this episode. There you can also find out how to support the show through Patreon. Patreon supporters gain exclusive access to content and perks. Later this month we'll have a bonus episode on the suspicious death of King Ghazi of Iraq, the son of one of the Hashemite princes that we heard about in this episode. I'd like to thank one of our long-time Patreon supporters, Craig, from the UK, who suggested this as a subject for the bonus episode. I hope you join me next week as we conclude our story of the origins, life and death of Faisal. Until then... Goodbye.